0: All right, this is fantastic, fantastic. All right, boys and girls, what do you like? What do you like to see when you go on vacation when you travel places? Do you like to see Do you like to see flat, flat land? Do you like to see desert, barren plains? Do you like to see mountains? Yes, yeah, amazing, isn't it? We like to see mountains. We enjoy mountains. Mountains are Mountains are impressive. And you know, I've never seen a mountain come down. Uh, Up here in these mountains, uh, any of you boys or girls, do you know what the highest mountain is in these mountains up here, what the name of it is? What? No? What? Everest, Rushmore? No, the tallest one up here, the one that's got the most snow in the winter, do you know the name of it? Oh, thank you, young lady. Thank you, young lady, that is correct. Is Mount San, is San Antonio Peak, better known as Mount Baldy. Almost 11,000 feet. Impressive. Impressive. I've never been to the top of it. Scott, have you been to the top of it? No. Any of you been to the top of Mount Whitney? Baldy? Mount Whitney? You have been to the top? My brother has. I never have. I've never been to the top of this. I've, never been to the, I've been close to the top of many mountains, but I've never been to the top. But I'll tell you, I love mountains. And every year when we were young, like Dave and I were young, Boys Brigade, we would go on camping trips, fishing trips. We would never go to the desert for these trips. We would go to the mountains. (laughs) Because the mountains are where the streams are and the lakes are, and that's where the fish are, that's where the camping is, that's where the hiking is. That's, it's nice. And there's something in the heart, I think of all people, that there is a great sense of wonder and awe that goes along with the mountains. We've got family back in Michigan, which they go skiing on a hill that I believe is 600 feet tall. So they've got this little rope tow and they go down it for about a minute and then back up again. They come out and visit us here. And we've got family in Virginia, North Carolina. And a lot of them come out here, or Illinois or Iowa, they come out here and visit. And the first thing they do, we usually pick them up at night. In the morning they get up and they look out the front door and they see the mountains right here in our backyard. You know, eight to 11,000 foot mountain range right here. And they can't get enough, so they spend the morning just going out there, and then they come back and get a couple, and then they got to go back out and look at it again. John Muir said, the mountains are calling, and I must follow. And he left his wife, his dirty old Scott, he's a dirty man, said he loved his wife. He would leave her for years at a time. Come back, visit her, but he heard the mountains calling, back he would go. Mountains are impressive. Mountains, mountains are thousands of years old. I've never seen a mountain disappear or come down. I know there's some island volcano mountains that have sunk back into the sea. But a real mountain, you know, a bedrock mountain, granite. Never, these things endure. Mountains endure. Mountains are impressive. And I saw a bunch of new mountains last year when, when Lauren and I went to Israel with a group from, uh, from a fellowship in, in Toronto area. And we, we saw Israel from the extreme north to the extreme south, from the extreme east to the west, from the Dead Sea to the Sea of Galilee, Jordan. We went all over. If for only this reason you go to Israel, you will see a land that is different than anything I've ever seen. And I've traveled a lot in the world. You will see the lowest spot on earth, which is a, which is a lake, which is a sea. You have any idea what that is, boys? The Dead Sea. I got a hat from the Dead Sea. It, said, it says negative 432. And that's not feet, that's meters. That's 1,400 feet below sea level. So if somebody carved a channel from the Mediterranean to the Dead Sea, that Mediterranean would just come in there and flood the entire Jordan Valley. Because even the Sea of Galilee is 1,100 feet below sea level. Jordan River, 1,100 to 1,400 feet below sea level because it flows from one to the other. Impressive place. You go, Lois, you were at the Dead Sea. We're bobbing like a cork. We look over here to the west, and here are these, we're bobbing like a cork. you got to do it. You've done it, Dave? Oh, you were probably afraid of it. I don't know. It it makes you tingle. It makes you tingle because it's like battery acid. It is amazing. I had to, I had to, I put, oh, it just about killed me. It is, it's not like the ocean. It's not 10 times like the ocean. It's a million times worse than the ocean. It, and it makes you pucker, and it makes, it makes you burn. And we're, and we're looking up at these massive mountains just coming right up out of it. It's just a diverse land. Israel's known for its mountains. Boys, can you, girls, I, I shouldn't say boys. We have a lovely young lady right here. Can you think of a famous mountain from the Bible? Any, any mountain from the Bible. Think of one. Any. Everest. No uh era, what error rat there's one let's see what's another one mount carm mount carmel mount carmel or carmel carmel mount carmel the mount of peaches <laughs> the the mount of Olives, Mount of Olives. How about, uh, do you know where the law was given to Moses out in the desert? It's called the Mountain Mountain of God. Thank you, young man. Thank you. (laughs) Mountain of God, Mount Sinai. Do you know where Abraham was sent to offer up his son? Starts with an M, Mount Moriah. Moriah. See, these are all famous mountains in the Bible. What's interesting about them is they're significant. What's what's interesting is that the Lord, when he wants to deal with his people or a person in general, he doesn't send them out to the desert or to the valley. He doesn't send them to a cave. He sends them to a mountain. And the mountains have a a really interesting significance in the Bible. And it begins at Genesis chapter 8. What was the first one I asked you? Starts with an A. Mount what? Mount what? Mount Ararat. Mount Ararat. What's significant about Mount Ararat? Do you know Levi? No? <laughs> the hot springs. It's the hot springs. Era. No. What was it? What, what happened on Mount Ararat? Yes? That's where the ark came to rest. So um, I've got 12 mountains I'd like to briefly look at. It gives us about three minutes per mountain. Some I'll do. I'll try to do quicker and some will take a little more time. But God has chosen to use mountains as places to declare both his judgment and and his blessing. To begin dispensations. You might I might lose you here to give promises to establish covenants or agreements. And what's interesting about it is you're not going to forget about it. Because if you live here in the valley and I know that God made his promise to me and my family and my people On the top of Mount Baldy, every time I look at Mount Baldy, I'm going to think of that promise that God made to me. I'm not going to think of some valley out that I can't see, but it's something that I can see every time at least every time I travel this area. I'm going to see that, and it's going to be a reference point for me. It's going to be a reminder to me. If I go up north into the Turkey-Armenia region, Mount Ararat pretty much stands alone. If you know uh, uh, The Hobbit, The Lonely Mountain, Mount Erebor, that that mountain is kind of out by itself. Ararat's the same way. And all the people of that area, whether they're Christian, Jew, Muslim, or other, they all call that the Mountain of Noah, the Mountain of the Ark. And it's a reminder, thousands of years later, of God's judgment of sin. Because what did the flood do? It destroyed the world that then was, the Bible tells us. It destroyed the world. It judged the sin of sinful man, but it spared how many people? Eight. Very good. Eight people were spared because of the righteousness of one man. And God delivered them from the judgment of the flood, and they alone lived through it, and they landed the mighty boat, the ark, on Mount Ararat, and there was a new beginning there. Who knows what was the first thing Moses did when he got off the ark? Oh, I see a smile there. You caught me, didn't you? Moses wasn't on the ark, was he? When Noah got off the ark, what was the first thing he did? Do you know, Levi? That, that's true, that he did that before he got up. But let's say the boat landed and they've opened the door and they're ready to get out. What was the first thing Noah did? Do you know? Oh I would I would have done that but he did something before that. He came out and he thanked God by building something else. He built an altar there on that mountain. And he sacrificed not just one animal but he sacrificed of all the clean animals. Because remember the animals went in 2 by 2 2 by 2 2 by 2 except the clean animals went in how many by how many? How many? Maybe seven, maybe seven of each of the clean animals. So he sacrificed of each of the clean animals. <clears throat> First thing he did when God delivered him and his family, he built an altar and he worshiped God with a sacrifice of blood. He knew that only with the shedding of blood would there be remission of sin. And he thanked God. And what did God give him as a sign of his promise? What did he give all of us? A rainbow. A rainbow. God put a rainbow in the sky as a promise that he would never destroy mankind with water. And it was a vertical rainbow going up to heaven. I like that analogy. And I'm going to use that from now on. Thank you, preacher brother. Thank you, young preacher brother. And it was, it was a rainbow of God from heaven to earth and a reminder that God has uh, provided another chance for us. Ararat's very interesting. It's a, it's a symbol of God's deliverance and new life and a symbol of God's mercy. The next mountain we read about in the Bible is a mountain called Moriah. We find it in Genesis chapter 22. God came to Abraham and said, now remember, Abraham had been waiting for like 50 years for the son that God promised. What was Abraham's son's name? Isaac. His name was Isaac. And Abraham loved that boy. Can you imagine how much Abraham loved the boy that he'd waited for till he was 100 years old? He loved that boy. Took him everywhere with him. We're jumping the gun. He loved that boy. He taught that boy how to ride a camel. He told that boy, he taught that boy how to shoot a bow and arrow. He taught that boy how to sling a sling. He taught him how to how to uh, shear a sheep. He just That boy went everywhere with him. He loved that boy. And one day God said to him, Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son, Isaac, who you love, and I want you to take him to a place that I will show you, and I want you there to offer him up as a burnt offering to me. I would have thought, well, we got some bad communication here because that's the boy that's supposed to be you know, the, the promised line. Oh, there's some bad communication. God, come get back to me tomorrow. No, he obeyed. The next morning he saddled up all his donkeys. He got his servants. He loaded up firewood. He grabbed his knife. He grabbed fire. He took Isaac with him and he went to the place that God told him to go Mount Moriah or a mount in the area of Moriah. And there. Abraham took the fire and the knife and he put the firewood on Isaac's back, and he told his men, his servants, to stay here while the boy and I go up to worship. And Isaac, with the wood on his back, went up what I believe is the same hill that the Lord Jesus went up with the wood of the cross on his back. And there he built the altar, and Isaac says, Father, I see the wood in the fire, but where's the lamb? And Abraham said, God will provide himself a lamb. And then he prepared to sacrifice his son on Mount Moriah. And just as he was about to bring the knife down. The voice of the Lord said stop. And he says and I see that you fear God and that you obey God. And I'm going to spare your son. He said, I'm going to spare your son. The son you love. But I'm going to provide one day the Lamb of God. And I'm not going to spare my son. The God of heaven said, I spared your son who you love. But I can't spare the son that I love. So it was there on Mount Moriah. There on Mount Moriah, through Abraham's obedience, God gives a promise that he will provide. In fact, from that day on, Abraham called that place. Jehovah Jireh. He called that place Jehovah Jireh. God will provide. And that was the name of it from then on. He also promised to Moses uh, to to, uh, Abraham that through Isaac. The seed will come that will bless all the nations of the earth, not just the nation of Israel, but all of the nations of the earth, all the nations of South America and North America and Europe and Asia and Africa, and Australia, and all the islands of the world. They'll all be blessed because Isaac was spared. But God was not going to spare his own son. Later, we come to another mountain out in the desert. Remember the story of Moses, prince of Egypt? Remember that? He was raised in the court of the king, of the pharaoh. He was second only to the prince, People obeyed his every command until one day he had to leave because he killed an Egyptian who was torturing his brethren, his Hebrew brethren. And out he went into the into the wilderness and he had to flee because Pharaoh wanted to kill him. And there he spent 40 years out in the wilderness. He thought that's well, this is my new life. I went from a prince of Egypt to a shepherd in the desert. And I guess this is my life. He found a wife. She wasn't a, she wasn't a, a Hebrew. She wasn't a Jew. She was the son of a, an Amorite, wasn't it? A Malachite, an Amorite. And there he starts his life. One day he's out shepherding in the, <clears throat> in the backside of the desert, it said. Not just the desert, the backside of the desert. And he looked up and there was a mountain there. It's a mountain we call... We call Mount Sinai now. And he sees a fire up on the mountain. It made him kind of curious. We went a little closer. What do you think he saw in that fire? A bush burning, but the bush wasn't burning? It was, was not consumed. Exactly. You're exactly right. So he drew near and he heard the voice of God there. And God told him, he says, Moses, Yes, is take off your shoes off from your feet, because the place where you're standing is holy ground. the very presence of God is there. Take your shoes off your feet. And he did. And God began to tell him how that he was going to use Moses to go back to Egypt. Moses thought his life was now in the desert with his wife and his son, and that's his life now, with his father-in-law Jethro. You know, he could make a good living out there. God says, no, I have other plans for you. You're going to go back to Egypt where they were trying to kill you. And you're going to stand before Pharaoh. It's a new Pharaoh there now. 40 years had passed. And you're going to tell him that God wants you to release your people, God's people, from slavery in Egypt. He says, he'll never listen to me. God says, oh, I know he won't listen to you. But I'm going to bring many, many plagues upon him. And then I will soften his heart and he will let you go. He had all these excuses. And there in Sinai, God displayed his holiness and his power <clears throat> and instructs Moses on what to do. Oh, about six months or a year later, Moses comes back to this mountain, but he's not alone. And the rest, maybe two, three, four million people are now at the foot of this mountain. He returns to this mountain. He's told the people what God had done there, what God had showed them there. It's there at Mount Sinai that he was introduced to the God of heaven. It was there at Mount Sinai that he's brought back. It's there at Mount Sinai that God asked him, because the people are complaining. They have no food, no water says, Moses, strike the rock. What happened when he struck the rock? Oil. He struck oil. No, no, I'm sorry. What was it? Water came out. Little, a little like a drinking fountain that bubbled down. And from that, four million people got water, right? Okay, no. He struck the rock and a gusher came out of there and a river flowed out of this rock. Enough for not only 4 million, two to four million people, but all of their cows and their sheep and And that's from the foothill, the foot of Mount Sinai. It's there on that mountain that Moses goes up. He leaves the people behind. God calls him to the top of the mountain. What does God give him at the top of the mountain? Gives him the law. The Ten Commandments. Written with the finger of God in tablets of stone. Written with the finger of God. Not with a hammer and chisel. But written with the finger of God. And he gives that to Moses. And so begins there at Mount Sinai a new age. At Ararat became the dispensation of human government. The end of the era of conscience. And the beginning of the era of human government. Here at Mount Sinai begins the dispensation, the era of the law. Men are under the law. They used to be under their own conscience. They did what was right in in their own eyes before God. Because God gives us a conscience, right? And then under human government, mankind knew from what God had put in their heart that there was a law. That God had expectations of what was good and what was evil. What was right and what was not. And so through the conscience of man, through the heart Uh, that God had given them, they had set up laws that are so similar to the laws of today. Actually, they were better than the laws of today because our laws are changing now. And God had given them the law, and he'd made it for a time to be a pointer. What, What the apostle tells us, the law is a schoolmaster to bring us to truth, and that is to bring us to Christ. The law shows us that we are all sinners. We've come short of God's glory. If we offend in one, we've broken them all. So the law was a scary time. But there on that rock, God reminded Moses that if your people will follow me, I will be to them their God and they will be to me a a special people. A special people preferred above all the other nations because they earned it. Right. Because they were so good. Right. No. He said in spite of you being the least of all the people I'm going to be your God and I'm going to make you a very special people for me. There at Mount Sinai Moses struck the rock. It says it's there while they were camped at Mount Sinai that God sent the manna from heaven. It was there while they were camped. At Mount Sinai that he gave him victory over the Amalekites. It was there on the peak of Mount Sinai that God opened Moses' eyes and allowed him to see the glory of the God of heaven. He said, Moses, turn your eyes. And I will pass before you. And as I pass, then you can open your eyes. And it blinded him and it made him to shine because he'd seen just a Just a small part of the glory of God. It was there that Moses went up, and what did the people do while they were waiting below? Do you remember what they did? It wasn't good. What wasn't good? While Moses went up, the people below said, He's not coming back, so let's. Let's what? Let's make something. Do you remember? Let's make a golden calf. We need a God that we can touch and see and feel, one that we can bow down to, one that we can carry around with us. Moses comes back down and he sees that Aaron and all the people had turned away from God in such a short time and had built themselves a golden calf. And God says, because of this, all of this generation, except for two people, are going to die before everyone else enters into the promised land. Do you remember who the two people, the two good people were that were going to make it and live? Joshua and Caleb. That's right. They were two of the 12 spies and they came back with a good report. And they didn't bow down and worship the golden calf and they didn't dance around it. And they didn't and they didn't worship it. So those two alone. But Moses and Aaron. Aaron for building the calf and Moses for another reason, didn't make it into the promised land. So there at Mount Sinai, we see that God displays his holiness and his power. He initiates the age of law. It's a significant place. Shortly thereafter, well, not shortly, but about 40 years thereafter, they finally make it to the promised land. They're about ready to cross the River Jordan. Joshua has now taken the place of leadership, Caleb with him. And now you've got a young generation there that's all under like 50 years old, 55. Everybody that was older than that, died along the way. Imagine all the funerals. Every day, hundreds of funerals. Hundreds of burials every day along the way. It was a journey of death and a reminder of the sin that brought that death. Interesting, isn't it? Every day, hundreds and hundreds of funerals while an entire generation was being purged. So those that were under that age of accountability, 13 or whatever, they were now 40, 50, they were in that age, and then all the ones born along the way. It was a fairly young people that entered the land. Moses would have loved to have crossed the river because it said he still had strength in his body, and he still had a clear eye. He wasn't hard of hearing. He didn't have to lean on a cro- on a cane or didn't need a walker. God took him up to a mountain on the other side of Jordan and says, Moses, I'm going to clear every bit of cloud and Fog and mist from the sky. And I'm going to let you see what I promised you. And it says he could see from the very north from Dan. He could see all the way into Judea. He could see all the way to the ocean. He could see Mount Moriah. He could see the Valley of Jordan. He could see the fertile plains and he could see the cities of the plains. And God says, see, I have brought your people here. But you can't go. God is a gracious God, isn't he? He let Moses see the fulfillment of the promise. And yet Moses still had to feel the severity, the reality of the judgment of sin. He tasted the wages of sin there, but he was blessed to see it. That was Mount Nebo. Once they got into the land, there was a Jebusite city there's a city named Jerusalem, and there in Jerusalem, I was in Jerusalem last year. Jerusalem is not one hill or one mountain, it is a lot of hills, a lot of mountains, one after the other, with dips and dives, and then another one, and then you go in a valley. And it's, it's quite the place. But there is a mountain there called Mount Zion, and it's part of that range of Moriah. And it was there that David, David had an experience with the Lord. Joshua and Caleb, they'd gone through the land and they'd conquered the people and they they claimed virtually all of the land, most of the land, not all of it, but most of the land. And people had begun to settle and they began to build and they began to farm and they began to raise their crops and God was blessing them. And it was a beautiful land. But David, when he became king, there were still enemies. And he, God had blessed David so that he'd given him victory in every battle that he went to with the Philistines and the Amalekites and the Amorites and, the, and all the other ites. Gave him victory over all of them. But one day David wasn't, wasn't feeling real smart. And he said to his general, Joab, he said, Joab, I want you to go out. I, I don't have a good count of our army. I don't know how many thousands of men we have. I don't know how many, you know, how many divisions I can break it into and how many regiments and battalions and companies. I, I need a good count. And Joab said, to him, Joab was smarter than David. Joab, his general, said, but David, the Lord has always made our number like 10 times greater because the Lord fights with us. So even if we go out with a thousand men, it's like we're fighting with 10,000. Uh, Still, I I really like that number. God had told Moses and he told Joshua and he told all the others. You don't number the people. Because when I fight with you, you're you're unbeatable. You can't be defeated. So don't count the people. David counted the people. God came to, to David and says, David, why have, you, why have you disobeyed me? Why have you done this? David says, I, you know, I know I've done wrong. David, I'm going to give you three choices. He said, I'm going to let you be slaughtered and beaten by your enemies for three years. Or I'm going to let you. What was the second one? Anyway, he took the third choice. The third choice was three days. Three days, the death angel is going to pass through you and destroy the people. And David wisely said, "Let me not fall to the hands of man or to my enemies. I'll, I'll, I will trust you for mercy." And so, through what it was, a thirty thousand people fell in those three days. And when the destroying angel was done he came to rest on a high point there with his, with his sword. And where he came to rest was on the threshing floor of Oronah, or Onan, which is a flat stone area where they used to beat the, the grain to get the kernels off of the stalks. Then they'd gather that up, and then they'd grind the grain to make their bread. And that, it's there that David bought that threshing floor. It might have been many acres Now Ornan, he was willing to give it to David. David says, no, I will not offer unto the Lord that which doesn't cost me anything. So he bought it at a fair price, and that was a hefty price. I think it was 70 or 300 talents of gold. And it was his intention there on that spot to build a house for God. They used to worship in a tent. They used to offer in a tent called the tabernacle but David thought well it's not fitting that God should be in a in a cloth tent when all of our all of our neighbors have these amazing marble palaces for their gods and he wanted to build one and God says I've never asked for it for a temple my dwelling place is in the hearts of the people and that simple tent is more than satisfactory David says, but I want to build you. I said, David, you will not build me a temple because you're a man of blood, a man of bloody hands. But I will allow your son to. So David spent the rest of his life preparing all the materials for the temple. It was there on Mount Zion that David bought it at a price. It was there that he saw the spot and prepared the land and prepared the material that he could build for God this beautiful house. It was there that shortly thereafter, Solomon would assemble that temple, a beautiful temple, its mighty courtyards, its walls, its beautiful, giant laver and all the furniture of it. And the day came that Solomon, his son, David, long dead, would dedicate that on that very site where the destroying angel had stopped. He says the people could not stand To sing or to watch when the presence of the glory of God came upon the dedication of that temple. said that fire and smoke filled the temple and the musicians had to stop playing because of the sight of it there. So there at Mount Zion the Davidic covenant the covenant with David was taking place. The Shekinah glory came down and it dwelt there for who knows how long. And there Solomon. Initiated the temple. And uh, we see God's presence there. Real quickly, we won't even really touch on this more than a little. Mount Carmel. I've been to Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel is a, is a hill with a range, a razorback range that runs off of it. And it runs for like 40 miles, halfway across Israel. And it's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. And it's so high that it's, and it catches the, the fog and the mist from the sea that it's always green. And there's a beautiful forest on it. I think of Israel as desert, desert, and a lot of it is. There's a lot of forest. I I don't picture Israel as forest, but we drive through the hills and it's beautifully forested. A lot of it's been replanted, but it's beautiful. But Mount Hermon has ancient trees on it, or Mount Carmel. And there at Mount Carmel, when all of the northern tribe, all of Israel, had turned its back on God and was worshiping Baal, it was there that Elijah challenged Ahab and and all of his prophets and Jezebel and all of their prophets and all of their seers to a contest on the top of Mount Carmel. When I drive by Mount Carmel now, or you drive by Mount Carmel now, I want you to think about that day. He told Ahab, he says, I want all of your nation there, all of your people. And if you see the place, you'll see there's room for hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people to be on the foothill there. And there was the contest. We know what happened. The priests of Baal danced and screamed and chanted and cut themselves, and and their and their uh, sacrifice was burnt up and accepted. Right? No, no. All they did was get tired and bleed bloody. Abraham or uh, Elijah prays after flooding his altar, flooding it and flooding it, flooding it. Lord, let it be known unto you. He had already said to the people, make a choice this day. If Baal is the real God, then yes, absolutely, worship Baal. But if God is God, then worship him. And all the people say, that is well said. They didn't say, we promise we'll do it. They said, well said. And then we know that the fire came down from heaven and it consumed the sacrifice. And it consumed the wood, and it consumed the stones, and it consumed the water, and it consumed the dust. That was pretty impressive. Because you know, some joker might have thrown some, you know, some chemical in there to go, whoa. No, it's kind of hard to make stone be consumed by fire and water and dust so that there is nothing there but a barren piece of bedrock. And the people said, the Lord, he is the God. The Lord, he is the God. And then they, they, had a, they had a nice butchering party there, and they killed the 450 priests of Baal and the other, and the other prophets of Baal as well. And then the, the curse was lifted, and it began to rain that very day. Elijah takes off to another mountain. He goes back, and he hides uh, at another mountain, and the Lord deals with him. This is a place of victory, Mount Carmel, a place of victory. There are other mountains Measured in the in the mentioned in the scriptures that aren't mentioned by name. For example, when the now we're in the New Testament, when the Lord is tempted in the wilderness, the devil takes him up to an exceeding high mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the earth world and all of their majesty, and he offers them to him. And the Lord Jesus there on the top of that exceeding high mountain says, "Get thee behind me, Satan! Thou shalt not. Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve." When we were in Nazareth, Nazareth is a mainly uh, Palestinian town. I think it's like 95% Palestinian and 5% other Jewish, uh, whatever. Because you've got to have your you know, police force and administration there. But it's like 95% na- uh, um, Palestinian. When you go to Israel, you're going to go to a lot of shrines. Over here, this, this church or this shrine or this cathedral, this is the spot that Mary had an a afternoon tea with Elizabeth. You know, they, I'm exaggerating, but there are spots like this. And, and the faithful or the gullible go in there and they bow and they do their thing and they weep at these supposed places, which I can pretty much guarantee you are not the right places. Uh, but these are all over Israel. <clears throat> One place we went to, which probably is right, it's called the Mount of the Precipice, and that's at the, at the south end of, uh, of Nazareth, because Nazareth, Nazareth is built on, on hills, very high hills, and you go to this one place, it's called the, the uh, Shrine of the Precipice, and you go to the edge there, and there's a plaque there, and it's got the verses there that the people wanted to throw Jesus over the edge, but he turned and he walked through them. From that view, you see, across the way, you see Tel Megiddo, the city of Megiddo. You see the plain of Jezreel or Ezreal Or, Armageddon, if you've heard of that name. Off to the left, you see Mount Tabor, and then farther in the distance, you see the mountains that are leading to Galilee, including Mount Hermon, the highest mountain in Israel, about 11,000 feet. We went to the hill of the precipice, and it was there that the Lord um, walked through them. Uh, To show that it was not his time, that men did not have power over him, that his time would be of his own timing. But like I say, to the left, as you look across the plain, you see Mount Tabor, which most people believe is the Mount of Transfiguration. It was there at the Mount of Transfiguration that the Lord Jesus takes his three closest disciples up there and with him appears two men. Went up on this mountain. The Lord Jesus went up on this mountain with his three disciples. And then two men appear. And they're shining and glowing. You have any idea who those men were? M- Moisha, Moses and-, and Elijah. Moses and Elijah. The fathers and the prophets. represented the father and the prophet. Both of those men. Elijah and Moses had had mountaintop experiences in their lives. Very important mountaintop experiences. And the Lord calls them to visit him there on the mountain. And he's got his three closest disciples there, his three closest friends there, and they're witnessing this, that the Lord is going and he's chatting with Moses and Elijah, who had been dead for a thousand years. He's chatting with them. How did they know it was Moses and Elijah? Well, they had their name tags on, of course. No, no, they didn't have their name tags on. But the disciples knew God had revealed to them that are he, speaking with Moses and Elijah. Wow. Jesus is on the same level as Moses and Elijah. Wow. We had no idea. And then God made Moses and Elijah disappear and he made the Lord Jesus appear shining bright as the sun. Shining glistering white. And a voice from heaven says no, no, no. He's not like Moses and Elijah. The voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son. Hear him. His words are the words of life. You you might think, oh, he's the same. He's equal to Elijah. No, he's not. This is my son. And there on the mountain, Mount Tabor, the patriarchs and the prophets validated the claims of Christ that he was the son of God. You didn't see them arguing with him and say, you have no right to be here. Can you imagine Moses and Elijah telling any other man? They'd say, you have no right to be here. You're nothing. But they deferred to the Lord Jesus. You know what they were talking to him about? It says in the Bible what they talked to him about. They talked to the Lord Jesus about Jesus about his soon to happen, his upcoming demise, his death. They spoke to him about his death. And they knew that for them to have a place in heaven, They had been looking forward to this all their lives and all their time in in paradise had been waiting for the Lord Jesus to bear their sins on the cross. They spoke of his demise and then they left and and God the Father says, this is my beloved son. On the Mount of Olives, we'll have to end quickly. On the Mount of Olives, the Lord Jesus went and he prayed the night that he was betrayed. And there it says he prayed all night and he wept and he sweat. Great drops of blood. And his main thrust of his prayer was, Father, if it be possible, take this cup from me. This is on the Mount of Olives, looking over to Jerusalem, looking over to the place where Abraham had offered his son Isaac, looking over to the place where the temple had stood, where the the Shekinah glory had, had risen, but was no longer there the place where the veil of the temple was, you could look across right to that point. And there he he prayed, Father, if it be possible, take this cup from me. But if it's not, and he knew his disciples were listening, then I'm willing to bear it. Why would he pray that in front of his disciples? He wanted his disciples to know that there was no other way. The Lord Jesus says, if there is another way, let's do it. Let's let this cup pass from me. God was silent. There was no other way but for the Lord Jesus to go to the last hill that we speak of the hill of Calvary to Golgotha. I've been there as well. It's not impressive like Ararat or like Mount Hermon. It's not tall and forested like Carmel It's just a stony little hill. On the outskirts of town. And try as they might they can't remove the effigy of the skull. I have pictures of it. And it was there at that hill. That the Lord Jesus. Hung and died. He bore my sin in his own body on the tree. Isaac was spared wasn't he. Abraham was willing to take his son, but but God the Father says, I'm going to spare your son who you love. And then that day on Calvary, God the Father did not spare his son, whom he also loved. Because he loved us. And gave his son to be a propitiation for our sins. I consider Golgotha, Calvary, the hill of love. In Ararat we see the, the hill of deliverance. Moriah. The promise of God's provision that he will provide a lamb. On Mount Sinai we see the revelation of God's power and holiness and in the initiation of the dispensation of law. On Mount Nebo we see that the promise was fulfilled. And that justice was enacted because Moses could, or, yeah, Moses could not cross over. Mount Sinai. We see God's presence. Mount Carmel. We see God's victory. In the exceeding high mountain. We see Christ's obedience. In the hill of the precipice we see Christ's irresistible path. Nothing was going to change the path he was on. We didn't speak of Mount Gerizim where the Samaritans worship. But that was a picture of Christ's promise. Because you'll not, you'll, the time is here where you will not worship in this hill, neither in Jerusalem, but you will worship in spirit and in truth. It was his promise. In Mount Tabor, you're revealed Christ's person. He was not just a man. Mount of Olives, Christ's purpose. And on Golgotha is revealed Christ's love for us. Mountaintop experiences. And as the people would pass these annually or daily or weekly or monthly, they'd be reminded that there was the place that the Lord Jesus was transfigured. There was the place where he sweat drops of blood. There's the hill where he cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? They're hills of remembrance. They're mountains of memorial. Brothers and sisters, if you go there, think about it as you look upon the mountain. Not just the scenery in the forest and the hillsides, whatever. Think about the purposes, the stories, the pictures that the, the Lord gave us in these mountaintop experiences. The promise of Christ, the person of Christ, the purpose of Christ. And there on Golgotha, the love of the Savior that he gave himself for me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for our Savior, the Lord Jesus, who trod those roads who walked those hills, who climbed those mountains. Father, we thank you that nothing would divert him from the path that took him to the final hill, the hill of Calvary. Father, we thank you that you love us so. Father, we thank you that you did not spare your son, who you loved, but gave himself freely for us. Oh, Father, we thank you for the mountains of the scripture, we pray that as we look at a mountain in our walks, in our daily walk, that we will think of the presence of God and his purpose and plan and his love for us. Father, we would also continue to pray for those that are down in Mexico. We pray that you would touch them this, this very day as they seek to minister unto your saints down there, as they seek to serve. And I know, Father, that they will be blessed because your presence is with them. Father, our, our, our main desire is that you bring them home to us safely and rejoicing uh, in the fellowship they've enjoyed, the work they've enjoyed, the blessing that they've, they've received uh, f- through the people of God there in, in Mexico. Father, we pray your hand upon this uh, day, upon the travels, uh, that all would be done to your honor and glory. And we thank you for the love of our Savior in his name. Amen.